Well, we come to Ephesians chapter 3 this evening in our series on Ephesians. It is a chapter that you rarely ever hear sermons on. The last little bit you do very often, but the, uh, most, the bulk of the chapter is one of those unpreachable sections through which I'll try and address our preaching. We uh, need to uh, keep in our minds something which is very easily covered up in Australia, that all men everywhere are really racists at heart. It's easy for us to, grasp, to uh, cover it up in Australia because most uh, people in Australia are from the same race, and so you can just avoid the problem. However, throughout the world, racial and cultural antagonisms are deep-seated and are, are uh, reflected in uh, not just uh, impoliteness, but in, in most bloody murder that is taking place around the community and around the world. Of recent uh, weeks, one of our congregation, uh, Margaret Grouse, has been quoted in the Herald on Saturday mornings. I only buy Saturday mornings Herald because of the real estate, looking for the house for the chaplaincy. But um, I, seeing I paid the money, I read the rest of it as well. Uh, well, not all the classifieds. I leave a few out. I skim. Um, but Margaret has been quoted in there as talking about some of the uh, terrible conditions of the people of Southeast Asia and the bitter wars that have taken place within there and most appalling things done from one group to another group. And Australians really are no different to that. We just have less opportunity. I still understand that the largest golf club in the Southern Hemisphere is the Royal Sydney Golf Club. It is right in the heart of the uh, part of Sydney that is uh, lived in by the Jewish community, but Jewish people are not allowed to become members of it. Racism is, is everywhere. Right? It's just got to do with opportunity, that we possibly don't see it as much, and we don't see it in our own hearts for lack of opportunity. But it is there and has been there from the beginning because when man breaks his relationship with God by rebelling against God, immediately thereafter he loses his relationship with his fellow men. And you see it typified in the magnificent story of Cain and Abel, appalling story but magnificently told in the Genesis account of Cain and Abel. You see it in Ham, Shem and Japheth, the, the, the uh, children of, uh, of Noah. You see it in the Tower of Babel when mankind unite to build themselves up to God. And again, in that rebelliousness of God, they are put into the judgment of not being able to talk to each other. And the whole nature of human language comes unstuck. Within the Old Testament, it seems as if God almost reinforces this racism by choosing out one special nation, the nation of Israel, and choosing them out to be different. And that is their job in life, to be different from the rest. A job that they seem to have succeeded in although the nature of the difference is not the way in which God always intended. But even down to today, the Jewish people have got that distinctiveness that though they might travel to every part of the world and live in every country, yet they remain distinct from the people around about them. But God chooses these Jews with special purpose in mind. That is only stage one of his program. And if you leave it arrested at stage one, you miss the point totally. Paul, writing in the, to the Ephesians, outlines the, the vast great plan of God, which we saw two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, and can be summarised as verse 10 of chapter 1. God's plan is for the end time, the fullness of time, to sum up all things under Christ as head. All things in heaven, things on earth. Yes, I have varied from the RSV, and those two weeks ago who can remember, will remember I said that the RSV translation is inadequate there to grasp the idea that Jesus is to put unity into everything in that he will be the head over all. That is God's great plan. And we saw last week 
God's plan working out in the life and death of Jesus, in that the Jews and the Gentiles are in opposition to each other. The Gentiles are in a hopeless situation, for they are without God, they are without hope, they are without the covenant, they are without the word of God. And yet, through the work of Jesus, they are united with the Jews in becoming God's people. And so, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, I take it, the Jewish Christians, and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This new state of the Gentiles comes about by the work of Jesus Christ. For Jew and Gentile alike were dead in sin and trespasses, and Jew and Gentile alike have been raised up in Jesus Christ to a new life. And so their new status, their status with God, that new status is exactly the same, dependent totally and utterly upon God and his work of Jesus Christ. That, of course, is the real status of anybody, their relationship with God and their standing in his sight. Therefore, Paul says in chapter, one of verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, this is the behaviour I want of you. Therefore, I, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which he has called you. And chapters 4, 5 and 6 go on to spell out the ethical implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go on to spell out the implications of how we live as Christian people. Those three chapters do that. But those three chapters and those implications are really, really reside on the first three chapters. And if we're to avoid turning Paul into a second Moses, we must see the connection of his logic. He's actually arguing for the Christian lifestyle on the basis of what he has said in the first three theological chapters, if you want to call them that. It is on that basis, and specifically on the prayer that he has just uttered in, from verses 14 to 21. That great prayer, that wish that he has for the Gentile Christians, for this chapter is addressed to Gentiles, you will see, that prayer that he has for the Gentiles is the basis upon which he makes a, an appeal to their style of life. And that prayer itself is hedged around with a large number of qualifications. So, he comes to prayer at the end of chapter 1, verse 15. But as he's praying it, he breaks off for the long discourse in chapter 2. Chapter 3, he starts to return to prayer when he says, For this reason I, Paul, a, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he remembers he hasn't said enough about him and the Gentiles. So he gives you another 13 verses. Before he comes to have another bash at prayer, I don't know about your quiet times, but mine are a bit like Paul at this. I keep on thinking of other reasons why I can't get to the prayer. Verse 14, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, and then comes his prayer. That is, his appeal to our godly living, which we're going to be looking at in the next three chapters, and are much easier to preach on, of course. His appeal for their godly living is based upon his prayer, and his prayer is based upon his understanding of the whole work of Jesus Christ seen in chapters 1 and 2, but um, importantly tonight, on verses 2 to 13, which are about two things, about Paul and about the mystery. 
The prayer is also based, of course, on his doctrine of God. Because you cannot pray to a God without believing something about him. Like, for example, he's there. So you've got to actually understand the doctrine of God as well that lies behind that prayer. So before looking at the prayer, as you see from the outline, before looking at the prayer, we need to look at Paul, at the mystery, and at his doctrine of God. Then understanding his prayer, we'll be able to put his appeal in its right context. Although the appeal comes in the next exciting instalment next week. Well then, oh, by the way, I wrote my notes so small this week that I can't put them down there and read. I'm, I'm not actually waving to you. I've got to hold them up here to actually cope with them. They're all on one page. It was a terrible mistake. Well then, firstly, let us look at Paul in chapters 3, verses 1 to 13. You notice how he, he actually puts himself forward at this place. Each time he says, I, Paul, am going to pray to you. Verse 14, I bow my knees. Verse 1 of chapter 4, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. His position is actually of importance. You'll see it further as it goes on. But he actually thinks that his situation is significant. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. His suffering is important even, even important for them. Paul is writing from prison, and so when he calls himself a prisoner, he may be using it literally. He enjoys calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ, and he may be using it metaphorically, that he's a slave of the Lord. But he does not want them to be discouraged or disheartened by knowing that he's a prisoner because his stand is for them. And so not only is he a prisoner on behalf uh, uh, for Jesus Christ, he is also a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul's ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles must be taken seriously. That is how he understands himself. And if we're to understand his epistles, we must understand him. And he sees himself and his whole life and work as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, most of us come from a Gentile background. There might be some people from Jewish background here. Most of us from Gentile background. And, and uh, therefore, he is our apostle. And let me warn you that you must be very careful of attacking the apostle Paul, for if you pull the plug on him, you might be pulling the plug on yourself at the same time. If Paul was wrong, then you have to be a Jew to be a Christian which of course puts us all in a fairly embarrassing situation, does it not? Say so nothing of a painful one if we haven't had a circumcision already. But not only do we see Paul here as a prisoner, he is a prisoner for Christ. Now, taking, uh, leaving aside the metaphoric use that he's actually a prisoner for Jesus Christ as he lives in captivity to Jesus, you also see he's a prisoner for Christ in that his ministry is a ministry about Christ. He is born witness to Christ. In verse four, three, uh, sorry, verse 4, you'll notice that the mystery that he is proclaiming is the mystery of Christ. In verse 11, you'll notice that that plan of God, that purpose of God, has been realized in Christ. That is why he's a, he's a uh, prisoner for Christ. For the Gentiles is whom he is serving. So in chapter 3, verse 2, you'll notice that God's grace has been given to him for the Gentiles. In verses 7 and 8, you can see that God's grace is given to him to preach to the Gentiles. Let me read. Of this gospel I made, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is Paul's ministry. It all has to do with preaching the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. This mystery has been made known to him. Verse uh, 3 and 4, you see he claims a special insight into the mystery of Christ, an insight which has come not through some mystic experience, but through revelation. Well then, Paul's ministry is all tied up with Jesus and the Gentiles and this mystery. Now, what is the mystery all about? Firstly, it's called a mystery because it's hidden. Verse uh, 5 tells you that it's been hidden so that men in, uh, sons of men in other generations did not know it. In verse 9, you're told that it's God's plan was, was the mystery hidden for ages. That's why it's called a mystery, because it's something that's hidden. The word mystery might be better translated secret in a sense. I mean, the translation's all right. But when we use the word mystery, we tend to expect something uh, magical, uh, over-symbolic. It's much more that God had a secret plan, which, because he kept secret, was a mystery to everybody else. It's been hidden, this plan of God. But now this hidden plan is revealed. Verse 3, it's been revealed to Paul. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written to you briefly. Verse 5, you see that the mystery is revealed to the prophets and apostles, which was not made to the sons of men in other generations, as has been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And it's been revealed to the apostles, and preeminently to the apostle Paul, in order to be made known to the Gentiles. So in verse, which one are we on? Verse 8, the second half of it, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and the aim of teaching it to the Gentiles is to make so that all men might know the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. But ultimately the plan of God is to reveal it not just to the apostles or Paul or to all the Gentiles, but to the whole heavens. And so in verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God uh, might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Can I suggest to you that verse 10 is a very important one and we will come back to that. So keep your eye on verse 10 because that actually reveals to you God's ultimate plan that by preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the church might show forth God's mysterious wisdom, not just to the rest of the world, but to the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. All the angels, all the uh, evil angels, all the, uh, the principalities and powers that lie beyond our understanding as mere mortals. All that actually take a look in on the church and see God's wisdom and his plan and purpose. Thus, the church has a great importance here in the mystery. And the mystery has great importance to the church. It's an unexpected phrase, isn't it? Verse 10 really comes out of the blue. We're really not expecting it, which is just an indication that we don't understand Paul properly, that we should be surprised by it. You know, when you understand somebody, then you know how they're going to be saying it, even before the sentence comes out. You can almost finish the sentence off for them. But suddenly, Paul sticks in a verse that I would suspect most of us would find quite unexpected. And it's got to do with the church revealing God's wisdom, not just to mankind, but to all people in the, all powers in the heavenly places. And this mystery, this plan of God, 
this mystery and plan has actually been worked out in Jesus. For at this point, God's plan, verse 11 we're told, was realised in Christ. Now, what is the plan? I've skipped a point. I'm going back to it now. It's what, 3B or something other? It's number three. What is the content of that plan? What is the content of this mystery that was hidden, is now revealed, preeminently revealed in the church, and has been realised in Christ? Well, the content is spelled out for us in verse 6. That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the great plan. If it didn't strike you as a great plan, you must think again, because it really is an enormous profundity that has just taken place. This is what it's all about, is that plan that the Gentiles become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Let me illustrate it to you from the first word there, the fellow heirs. In the Old Testament, one nation was known as the heirs of God, and that was the nation Israel. They were the heirs of God in lots of ways. Firstly, and uh, most obviously, in that God had promised them a land, and that land was known to be their inheritance. And all their traips and their years, their work and their years in Egypt, and all their traips through the uh, through the wilderness, was all heading and aiming towards receiving their inheritance, the inheritance that was given to them by promise of God, for God had promised to Abraham, to Jacob, and to Isaac that they would have this land, and so the Jew was always looking forward to his inheritance coming, and when he received the inheritance, it was actually apportioned out to him so that each tribe had their inheritance within the inheritance. Each tribe had their own lands given to them by God, which was their inheritance, the inheritance of Judah and the inheritance of Manasseh and so forth. And not only was it the nation and not only was it the tribes, but each family had their own inheritance. It was my land, my father's land, which was given to me, which really could never be taken from me. And the great 50-year jubilee every 50 years all debts were forgiven and you returned back to your family plot because that was an inalienable right of yours given to you by God. So every Jew was an heir, had an inheritance within the inheritance and the whole nation of Israel was thought of itself and describes itself in the Old Testament as being the inheritance of God. That God is also an heir. He owns Israel. They are his peculiar possession. Some people say peculiar indeed. Now, where were the Gentiles in all that? Well, of course, they're kicked out of the land in order to provide it for the Jews, aren't they? You only need the book of Joshua and Judges to see the position of the Gentiles made all too clear. And the Israelite never really lost sight of that, that it was his land. He owned it. These, these Canaanites had just moved in and they were being dispossessed by God uh, quite violently in order that God's people might be given God's inheritance. You still see it in chapter 2, verse 11 following, that Gary referred to last week in the sermon. Look at the Gentiles there. Remember you Gentiles at one time in the flesh were called the uncircumcision, that, that, which is called the circumcision? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, 
without God in the world. That's the Gentile state, totally on the outside. No inheritance, no hope, no God. A strange way of describing people who are polytheists by and large. But now, now through the work of Jesus Christ, they have become fellow heirs. The inheritance is their inheritance. They have got the promised land of God. They are God's peculiar people through Jesus Christ. And each of those words in chapter 3, verse 6, the fellow heirs, the members of the same body, and the partakers of the promise of Christ, all have the little, prep, uh, the little prefix uh, S-U-N, which comes into English as S-Y-N and S-Y-M. Right? You see it as a prefix in lots of English words. Symphony, sympathy, right? uh, synthesis, which always refers to the coming together. The symphony is the uh, phonere is the noise. It's the noise which is working together. The sympathy, pathy, is, uh, is uh, your feelings, your suffering, pathos, right? Sympathy is feeling together with. Right? The uh, synthesis is putting together of theses. That little prefix, sun, in Greek, always has the idea of bringing together. And these people are brought together in one body. These people are brought together as one heir. They are indeed the heir of God. These people are brought together in that they share their partners. And the word here, partner, is used in the commercial sense of the word partner. They are fellow partners in the promises of the Messiah. These Gentiles who had no hope, who were without God, who were strangers and aliens, who really were outside the, the kingdom of God and really um, beyond the pale. Now, that is the mystery of God that those people who for centuries looked like they were nobodies should be made not just somebodies, but the ultimate, the people who share in the very kingdom of God. That is the great mystery. Never would have guessed it, but that is what is taking place, that you and I, aliens as we are to God, can now, by the work of Jesus Christ, enter in with boldness and confidence into the throne room of God. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confidence of access through our faith in him. As it's also put in chapter 2, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is, we who are living in the land as people who are rebellious to the government, like illegal immigrants, we were alive in this world although we deserve to be dead, for we were sinners through and through. Indeed, so sinful were we that we can be described as being dead. We in that category can now go to the very King of Kings and make our requests known to him as full citizens, the owners of the land. That is an enormous privilege, which of course we find hard to grasp because for most of us we're Australians and we've been born citizens. We've always had rights. We do not know what it is like to live without the rights of citizenship. And for most of us, we've always taken it for granted that God would treat Gentiles in the same way in which he treats Jews, that we can come into faith through Jesus Christ without worrying about our background. That is only a measure of the greatness of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, that he should so persuade us that we even find it hard to think back into the first century controversy. Great was his ministry indeed. Thus Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, wants to pray for the Gentiles, he can do so because of his doctrine of God. Three points I'd want to make about that doctrine of God. Firstly, 
is its dependence upon the understanding of the mystery. So there's no real point praying for the Gentiles if you do not know what God's plan for the Gentiles uh, would, uh, would uh, hold. But he does know the plan. He does know that we can enter in uh, with boldness to the throne room of God, even though we were his aliens and strangers. We can now, as members of his kingdom, come to him. And so it was with boldness that he can approach God, because also he knows that God is the Father. Interesting phrase used there in verse 15 and 14 and 15. He bows his knee before the Father, from whom all fatherhood, they don't have a word for, for, for family in Greek. It really is the word fatherhood. All fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. It's not an anthropomorphism there, actually. It's, the, it's saying that uh, all fatherhood here is just a pale shadow of God, who is essentially the father. It's a very interesting phrase. Now, we can approach God, therefore, as father because he is well disposed towards us. So that is the characteristic of father you find in the Bible. You can approach to him because he is in favour of you. All the more can you see that when you understand the plan of God, that is to bring the Gentiles into his family, that they may call him father. So we can approach him because he is well disposed. We can also approach him because he is the mighty one. Verse 20, Now to him who by the power at work in you, within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So he is the mighty one who can do more then we've got the courage to even ask for. And I've asked for some pretty big things in my time, and I'm sure you have as well. But God has power to do even more than that. Now, see, when you come to pray to somebody, and you praying to somebody is just like asking somebody, you can come and ask me something if you want to. You can come and ask me for $100 after church if you like. You've got two problems. One, am I sufficiently well disposed towards you to want to give you $100? Two, have I got the economic wherewithal to be able to give you $100? They're your two problems, aren't you? Aren't they? There might be some others like Helen, and, uh, but we'll just keep it at those two at the moment. They're the two major ones with any prayer that you might care to offer. Is the person I'm asking able to do that which I'm asking? Is he of a mind of favour towards me that he'd be willing to do that which I am asking? Paul approaches the Father in boldness, because he knows the mystery of God's plan to bring all men, Jew and Gentile alike, under the, son, under the lordship of Jesus Christ and therefore under the sonship of God. And he approaches him on the grounds of his might, for he is able to do more than we can even think up to ask. That is his doctrine of God which underpins this prayer. And you see it links right in with his understanding of God's purposes and plans in this world. Well then, what is his prayer? Before I take that, I want to now return back to a point that I've said earlier. That is the significance of verse 10, namely the church. For when you grasp hold of what the mystery is, and that God is at work bringing it about, you can start to understand why he sees the significance of the church. It's only when you grasp that, the uh, significance of the mystery, that you can grasp the significance of the church. And this is one of the few verses which tells you of the purpose of the church. One of the very, very few purpose, uh, verses. What he's saying is that in the church, in the gathering, you see God's plan fleshed out. You see it come to pass. God's plan to unite men and women 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for that is the only way they can be united ultimately. That is the great reversal of the Genesis fall. For when Adam breaks his relationship with God, he breaks his relationship with his fellows. When God re-establishes his relationship with man, he re-establishes his fellowship with his, with his fellow men. That must take place. The re-establishment, the overcoming of the Tower of Babel, the overcoming of Ham, Shem and Japheth set in opposition to each other, the overcoming of Cain and his murderous activities, that men and women are now brought back into un union with each other. And that shows that God has been working his purposes out. You see, all the way down through the centuries, it looks as if Satan has won. When men treat men inhumanly, when they starve each other, when they war with each other, when they attack each other, when they rip each other's off in their lands, in their properties, in their money, in their wealth, when they oppress, it constantly looks in the history of this, of this world that Satan is in control. Very hard to write an optimistic history of the 20th century. You really have to work hard to see the general progress of man up and up and up. It is a depressing story of one barbarity pushed upon another. And increased media exposure only increases the barbarity of man to man. Satan looks in control. But yet, in the establishment of the congregation of God's people, where barbarian and Scythian, where slave and free, where man and woman, where people from any part of the world can be in equal standing before God, you see God's plan coming about to unite all men under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is great God's great plan. It's hard to see it in the Sydney Morning Herald. You can see it in the congregation of God's people because it no longer matters whether I was born in Hong Kong or in Bondi. That is an irrelevance. My true standing as a human is my standing in my relationship with God, which can only be through Jesus Christ, whether I come from Hong Kong or from Bondi, irrespective where my parents may have come from, from England or France, from South America or wherever, makes no difference. And it makes no difference if I'm rich or poor, intelligent or, or stupid, old or young. That, Irrelevant considerations. My standing in this congregation, like your standing in this congregation, is totally and utterly dependent upon the death of Jesus on our behalf. And therefore, all other considerations can be put away and we can be united with one another because we're united with God through Jesus and his spirit. And so the whole process of sin is brought to its total re return when you come back to the church, to the congregation of God's people. Now do you see the importance of that verse 10, that God's plan that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, not just to the world, they most likely won't see it because they're still under the captivity of Satan, but to the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. They have been caught unawares. God has been able to reunite mankind and so Paul prays for them. He prays that they might be strengthened by the Spirit in verse 16, that they might be indwelt by the Son. Strengthened by the Spirit so that they might have a real backbone. Not flabby, not wishy-washy, pushed around by every wind of doctrine that might come to care along, 
by every pressure and group activity and peer group pressure that comes to them. Not people like that, but they might really have spiritual backbone. I'd use spiritual guts, but I'm afraid of offending people. That they really might be stern and that they might be rooted, firmly rooted in faith in Jesus Christ and the faith of Christ. That they, they actually might be a good, strong tree, stout in its, in its, uh, in its trunk, and deep in its roots. Now, I don't think he's actually talking about two different things there. Strengthened by the Spirit and indwelt by the Son seem to be much the same kind of thing. It's interesting in this uh, epistle, and you might like to reflect upon it sometime later than tonight, uh, on its implications to, to some, uh, some views uh, of charismatic theology, that within this epistle you are filled by Christ, you are filled by God, and you are filled by the Spirit. All three doesn't seem to me three different things, all the same thing it would seem to me to be, but this, that you might be uh, strengthened through the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be, may be rooted and grounded in love. For you see, if Christ dwells in your heart through faith, if the Spirit truly dwells within you, then that which will be promoted in you is love. Not only just love, but understanding of that love. You remember that from that Philippians 1 passage that we might pray that we might have love with understanding. That we might actually grasp hold of the full magnitude of the love of Jesus Christ. Its height, its depth, its breadth, its width. That we might really grasp hold how enormous the love of Christ has been for us. Because in the doing of that, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That God's whole life our whole being might actually fill us, overflowing with godliness, because we're overflowing with God himself. That's an incredible thing to want at the end of verse 19, that we might be filled with all that is God, that that might be dwelling in me, that I might be absolutely dominated by all that is God. And that comes about as I really grasp hold of the love of Jesus Christ, the love of all his magnificence, you reflect about it in the situation in which we're talking about in the uniting of Jew and Gentile together. What is the love of Jesus like? We've picked it up almost every week for the last few weeks, Romans 5, 8, that while we're his enemies, yet he died for us. That's the great sign of his love. But take it from another verse, say 2 Corinthians 8, I think it's verse 9, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we who are poor might become rich. That's a lovely verse, isn't it? It's not a hard one to remember, either. I'll handle it, you can too. And it's a beautiful verse, for it really describes, you see, the work of Jesus. He was rich beyond all splendor, beyond all hope of your expectation for wealth. Elvis Presley was a pauper in relationship to Jesus Christ. Right? Wealth beyond your wildest imagination. Yet what does he do for us? He impoverishes himself totally by putting himself into this world born of the frail human flesh and living in the appalling conditions of the life that he did even to the point of its, its, uh, its very early uh, termination at the hands of sinful and barbaric men. He became appallingly impoverished so that we, who are just as impoverished as he became, so that we might become rich. Have you noticed the way in which he loves? It's got nothing to do with our lovability, has it? He actually exercises himself on people who are disgusting to the mind of God, for their deeds are abominable. 
seeing that lying lips about are abominable to God. I cannot think what the rest of me must be like. We're actually abominable to God, that which makes him want to vomit. But yet, he becomes like us, so as to bring us into a new life altogether. As we grasp hold of the magnitude of that, how can I now go on and treat my brothers and sisters as beneath my dignity, as if somehow they are inferior to me because their colour is different or they cannot handle the, the Queen's English, which I'm not so crash hot at handling either, that somehow they are inferior to me because they haven't got my intelligence or my good looks or whatever it may be. You doubt. <laughs> that our whole attitude to people must be like that of Jesus, who their very poverty should evoke from us the desire to give up our wealth in order to help them. Now, do you see what a reuniting force that can be for mankind? Remember the sermon of Peter Taylor here in 1 John chapter 4 just a few weeks ago, that we love because he first loved us. There is the great example. And how can I want to be a recipient of the love of Jesus Christ, and at the same time, be unconcerned about the thousands and millions of these people, uh, people in this world who do not have enough to eat, who are under political oppression, and who have never heard of the great news of Jesus Christ. And how can I actually be a recipient of the love of Jesus Christ and ignore the feelings of my brothers and sisters who sit in the same building as I do, week by week? As we reflect upon the love of Jesus Christ, we will be filled with a godliness that will bring about that reunification of mankind under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and therefore will show the glory of God, for his plan will come to its fruition. And so Paul's prayer winds up with this magnificent ascription in verses 20 and 21, that God might be glorified in us, in the church and in Christ. He's clearly glorified in Christ, in the work of Christ on the cross, and his work in Christ in this life, and rising again. But that he might also be glorified in the church. That is Paul's hope. Because the ultimate aim of, Jesus, of God, in summing up all things under Jesus Christ, is to bring it all to the glory of God the Father. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father that when Jesus is seen as the Lord of the universe, then God will truly be, be glorified. When the last enemy is put under his feet, that is death, then he will hand his kingdom over to God the Father, it said in 1 Corinthians 15, and then God will be all in all. So that is, the, that is the real finale of it all, the real purpose of having all things in submission under Jesus Christ. And it takes place now in the church, in the congregation, in, in we who are sitting here at this night. It takes place when we are in love with one another. There it is already taking place that God is glorified because his purposes have been worked out. And we who come, as almost no other congregation I suppose in Sydney comes, from as many backgrounds as we particularly come from, we who can come from all parts and par parts of this world, that we can be unified with each other is a great blow to the pride of Satan, for he sees all his master plan undone by God through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. 
So Paul's prayer and his appeal, which we'll go on to look at in detail in the coming weeks, Paul's prayer and his appeal is for the church. That is for us. That we here might indeed fulfil God's cosmic purpose for the church by being united with one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But that is what we must really be striving for. Thus it is you see, as we saw in 1 John, that church can hardly be an optional extra for Christians. really can't be an optional extra. It makes fun and nonsense of what the whole plan and purpose of God is in the gospel of Jesus. It's to bring about the testimony of God's wisdom through the church. can't really have the church as something that you can take or leave as a Christian. This is the purpose for which you are called through the gospel, that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Son and with the Father. And furthermore, as it must be a living demonstration of God's reversal of the Garden of Eden, it's important that when we are in church that we do not come as anonymous people without care or regard for each other. For such a thing is an absurdity. Where is the love of God demonstrated to the principalities and powers that you and I might care to sit in the same rain shelter for an hour each week? It's got to do with actually being in love and fellowship one with another, which takes time and energy and effort to put into it, doesn't it? And it takes consistency in attendance and care for each other that we might be in such relationship and actually praying for each other. That is the way in which, in the shadow of the Tower of Babel, we can actually reverse what is taking place. The world we live in can all be reversed. See? Now, we have a classic example of doing it here in this place. For here we do have people who are not divided particularly on age, but are certainly divided, and much more fundamentally than by age, in our whole backgrounds, our whole cultural backgrounds. You have heard tonight of the work of ACF. Here is a group of people seeking to minister to these students who have come from all around the world to study for a short period of time in Sydney. Here is an opportunity to exercise our love and to demonstrate that we do, not, we do not communicate only with Australians, but the love of Jesus is for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, whether they come from Malaysia, whether they come from Indonesia, from Africa, from South America, it makes no difference. They have a warm and full place in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Likewise, we've heard and seen tonight two new, two new Christians, a brother and a sister, who are to be united in marriage. The fact that they've come from Vietnam is an irrelevance. It's not an irrelevance to many people in this world, is it? For many people there is deep-seated feelings of unhappiness and resentment, but that is an irrelevance to you and to I. For our citizenship is in heaven. We're only sojourners in Australia. You mustn't place that as any significance. And our brother and sister as members of heaven, raised up to sit with Christ in their heavenly places. So it is within our congregation, we're to work hard at showing love to all, irrespective of their circumstances of life. And therefore, Paul's prayer and appeal is for the individuals within the congregation. It's for each of us to actually make the effort. We need to make the effort in lots of ways. In the whole world, for you see, the gospel must therefore be for all men everywhere. That is the point that we read in Isaiah 56, that that is the way it is now. And we rejoice in the fact of Helen going to, uh, uh, to Africa in the coming weeks 
And I'd continue to commend her to your prayers, as we will do in the next couple of years, to your financial assistance. And you can see Terry about that if you want to know any further details about it. But we might be able to support her in bringing the gospel to millions of people who do not know. And I trust that many more of us will consider taking the gospel elsewhere. As, for example, Amanda is going to India in her, in her free vacation in a few weeks' time. So we must all be turning our eyes on the millions of people who live a very different lifestyle to us, who do not have the comforts and enjoyments that we do and the privileges of colour television and the rest, but who desperately need the gospel and who through Jesus Christ have as much right to God as you and I do. And it is upon us to bring about that, that God's plan might be furthered. Or indeed, we must solve the problem in the here and now, in the building of this congregation that we are amongst, that we must open our hearts warmly to people of all cultural groups and show them a true and real fellowship, not allow them to be forced into a ghetto mentality of staying within their own cultural group, nor force them to come to the assimilation of the pagan Australian culture, but to love them for who they are, for Christ loved them before we did. And we must work and seek to help them. And we need to do physical things to help them, like through, through uh, the work that Philip and Margaret Grouse have been doing in ICRA, the uh, Indochina uh, Refugee Association, of offering real and physical and, uh, and, uh, um, and humanitarian help to people who are undergoing great privations. One of our brothers and sisters here in this congregation told me the other night that they haven't heard from their family for three years because of the change in government in their land. That's an appalling circumstance to be living in, isn't it? We need to love our sister and to offer her the family that is lost. That is lost. We know and we, uh, we have heard of, the, uh, of our, our brother Danny testified to us some months ago of real tragedy that occurred in his life a few months back in his home in Uganda. That is, we read of what happens in Uganda. We have a brother in our midst who suffers those things. We must be praying for him and caring for him and offering him the family that he needs. Because when we are doing that, we are doing what the plan of God is, to reunite mankind under the headship of Jesus Christ, that God's name be glorified and marveled at by Satan, who has been utterly defeated. The real practical implications will be spelt out in the next few weeks, but you can see the direction the epistle is already heading. We won't question because of the time, but you can grab me later if you need to.